the joy and the delight that we each are able to experience today, the opportunity to come together and to worship the loving God in heaven who has not only made us but has brought us to this place and time. It's truly a joyful opportunity to open the Word, to pray, to sing, to engage in fellowship with each other. And as we come to this part of the lesson this morning, as you can already see by the title, we've arrived at the 10th edition, the 10th installment, if you will, of this series of lessons on pre-millennialism. Our study has been somewhat methodical and systematic as we have attempted to look at some of the principal aspects and features of this system of theology. It is one flawed in so many of its ways. So many of the things set forth we have found to be not only not true, but actually the Bible teaches the exact opposite. It will be our burden today to look more carefully at the so-called battle of Armageddon. I would as I always seem to think it appropriate to do, to at least briefly remind us of where we have been and where we're going in this series. We are well over halfway through it, in case you might be wondering the extent to which we'll be studying in this series. So far, we have looked at lessons by the titles I have listed for you here. We learned the necessity of God's authority. As God speaks on this subject, what men have said is of no consequence or importance to us. Furthermore, we did study in one lesson what men have so frequently found themselves to say, teaching about rapture, tribulation, Christ's coming, the millennial kingdom, and things like that. Again, in the third lesson, we ask very carefully, why did the Savior come? Why did Jesus come to this earth on that occasion some 2,000 years ago? The Bible answers it, and you and I noted so carefully the fourfold answer given. Following that, we turned our attention to a lesson entitled The Failure of the Jewish Rejection in Terms of Christ's Coming. It was not a surprise. The Old Testament had foretold it, and thus, when he came, they ought to have known the matters and the specifics of that rejection. In the fifth lesson, we saw the kingdom prophecies and their fulfillment in the church. The gloriousness of the church from the very dawn of time and even long before wherein in the mind of God the greatness of what you and I have was already well known to him. You'll notice in the lessons that followed, both the rapture and tribulation were shown to not be taught in the Bible. Most recently, in the last two lessons, we looked at Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks and found that it spoke about Christ and his coming, and the chronology fits so powerfully well. And then finally, of course, last week, the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast. We hear so much, especially about those two things, in light of the lesson today. I would ask you to think with me about the battle of Armageddon today. I realize that what you and I are about to study is so far removed from what many are so quick to tell us. If you watch many television evangelists, you'll find that they are able to make such a great scene with respect to Armageddon. They will strike fear into the hearts of their listeners, understanding and powerfully pounding in them the fact of what is supposed to happen, the events that will take place, and what must be done to prepare for it. You will not hear me say much at all about anything like that. In fact, I would like to begin the lesson simply by reading a small quotation from a particular person who believes strongly in the battle of Armageddon, just as a hint of what you will hear if you listen to what they say. Now, I have not written this in its entirety. I do have a part of it there. My reading will be a bit lengthier than that. 
However, it still is reasonably short, and I thought we would do well to hear it. You might not be too surprised to hear some speak today about something like this. Listen if you would. The world's darkest period of tribulation and horror under the Antichrist will abruptly end with the dawning of the brightest dawn as Jesus Christ himself returns to gather his children to be with him. Lights, trumpets, thunder, earthquakes, gigantic meteor showers will all herald this cataclysmic event. God's children who have died throughout the ages will be resurrected in new miraculous bodies and will burst forth from their graves and ascend to meet Jesus in the air. Live Christians will be transformed and will rise from the earth, floating upward through ceilings and buildings and cars and right up to the clouds to meet Jesus. Such is the scenario depicted in the Bible of the second coming of Christ as he snatches his children out of evil, out of the reach of their evil antichrist persecutors and whisks them away to the grandest, most glorious and thrilling victory celebration that's ever been held, the great marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. Meanwhile, down on earth, the horrible wrath of God is being poured out upon the Antichrist, forces left behind, a time so terrible. The Bible says men will seek death but be unable to find it. Then, shortly after Jesus' second coming, down from the sky will come the great hosts of heaven with Jesus in the lead to destroy the Antichrist and his one-world empire in the awesome battle of Armageddon. This great slaughter of the Antichrist and his armies will take place in and around the valley of Megiddo near Haifa in Israel. It will mark the end of man's cruel rule on earth as Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, and his heavenly forces forcibly take over the world to rule and reign and run it in the way it should have been run for 1,000 years in a period known as the millennium. You just heard me read a synopsis of what many will embed in the minds of their hearers. And you might notice that one of the parts and elements of that, and I actually have written it here on the board for you, was Armageddon. That's a word that has come to strike such fear into the hearts of so many who listen. Was there a movie, in fact, by that name? I think it was some 12 years ago now, in 1998 in which portrayed in that was a tremendous event that supposedly are to happen then, Armageddon. May I invite us today to ask, what is the Bible's teaching of Armageddon? What does it mean? Does the Bible synopsis of it relate in any good way to what you and I have heard today? Or is the biblical teaching far removed from this fanciful description that I have just read? By the way, if you're interested... That reading that I just read to you was taken from a website named Countdown.org, sponsored by and maintained by a group of people who, in fact, are thinking, certainly we are in the final days of this earth and Armageddon is near. If you'll read that site, they preach it over and over again. What does the Bible say about the battle of Armageddon? As we begin that study... Here are some notes that I wish us to consider as we undertake that consideration this morning. First of all, isn't it somewhat intriguing that as much as you and I hear about the battle of Armageddon, that word occurs one time in the entirety of the Bible, only once. 
And Brother Eddie was kind enough to read that for us in our reading this morning. Revelation 16, verse 16, is the one and only place in all of the book of God in which that word is found. However, one might certainly gain impressions from the appearance in that place that there may be some significance in other biblical places to it. However, you and I need to look carefully at how that significance is presented. Here's a slide that leads us, it would seem, to what the thrust of Revelation 16 and its usage of Armageddon is all about. First of all, that word Armageddon literally means hill or city of Megiddo, M-E-G-I-D-D-O. And that immediately submits to us perhaps a need to ask, what's the history of the city of Megiddo? Maybe the writer of Revelation, John the inspired apostle, in his usage and reference to that by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was calling upon the knowledge of events happening there in days long gone by and using it as as a symbolic and figurative thrust as to what should be appreciated in the unfolding story of the Revelation. And so if we revisit some of the scenes of the Old Testament, we will learn this. The children of Israel conquered, of course, the land of Canaan, the land of promise, that under the leadership, of course, of Joshua. And we find so interestingly that as they conquered it, Megiddo is one of the cities that was therein mentioned. They thus began to occupy that place wherein the city of Megiddo was located. But, much to a disappointment, we quickly learn in Judges chapter 1, verse 27, that the tribe of Manasseh, who actually was given the inheritance and the lot where the city of Megiddo was, they did not do the duty that God would have asked them to do and cast out the inhabitants of that land. They allowed the Canaanite inhabitants of Megiddo to remain there and live amongst them. We find later some rather interesting events happen near Megiddo. For instance, in Judges chapters 4 and 5, we learn about Deborah the prophetess, and also Barak, the one who was the leader of her forces, fighting against Jabin and Sisera. And we learn in Judges 5.19 that it was at Megiddo where part of that victory of Deborah and Barak over Jabin and Sisera was enjoyed. We find many years later some other things also took place there. Somewhat sad. We learn that the king, the Judean king Ahaziah, was slaughtered there, slain there by Jehu, that rather ruthless and rebellious man. We learn later that that godly man named Josiah. You and I have come to think so highly of his efforts and labors to draw the children of Israel back to a right relationship to God. He lost his life at Megiddo. We learn that in Second Kings chapter 23. Perhaps in summary to those concepts, would those last statements perhaps not be fair? Megiddo then, in the history of the mindset of Israel, it was a place known for great victories. Victories like Deborah's and Barak's over the enemies of the Canaanites. Victories like some of the Israelites knew when they first conquered Canaan. However, it was also a place of notable and tragic loss, such as the death of the beloved King Josiah the death of Ahaziah, and also, of course, some of the other losses that took place there. It was thus a place with mixed feelings and mixed responses. Great victories on the one hand, tragic losses on the other. 
it will be thus our consideration now to ask, what about John's usage of it in Revelation 16? Where does the context lead us to an appreciation in the 16th chapter of the book of Revelation? Let's give some thought to that, if you would, with me. In the chapters leading up to Revelation 16, we immediately encounter, starting in the opening parts of chapter 15, a very pristine scene on the one hand, but quickly to be clouded with the wrath of God on another. It was a mixed position, wasn't it? We find there were those who, with that glassy sea in front of them, were about to sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. They were understanding, you see, of the placement of God's protection of them and the glorious goodness of His security that they were able to enjoy. But before that very chapter ends, these same ones were aware of the fact that there were others in far dire straits than they. For God, you see, had given seven angels, seven vials, bowls, if you please, containing the fullness of His wrath. And those angels, God was going to command shortly to pour out that wrath upon somebody. Who were going to be the recipients of His wrath? Was it these that were the ones that were prepared to stand on that glassy sea and enjoy God's protection? Or was it some other people? Others who perhaps had been rebellious, those who were the servants to the dragon and the two beasts mentioned in Revelation 13. That question you and I shall shortly answer. But as we build up to the consideration of it, you'll notice one thing about chapter 16 that is so very graphic. If you wish to read with me in verse number 9 of Revelation 16, we encounter this phrase, And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over those plagues. And they repented not to give Him glory. Here is a description of some people who repented not to give God the glory. Furthermore, we notice that the difficulties describing in this way of heat, as well as in that same verse, plagues. The very mention of plagues takes you and me back to the scene of Exodus chapter 7 through 12. And we've been studying them on Sunday morning, haven't we? In our Bible study classes in the auditorium. We have looked one by one at the ten plagues. And we're now in the midst of discussing the tenth one. We notice that in so many instances, we find it explicitly affirmed that God's children, His people, the Israelites, were not the ones suffering beneath those plagues. They were reserved for the Egyptians. They were reserved for those who had refused to submit to the authority of heaven, to those who had refused to bow the knee, if you please, to the greatness of God and the obedience to His command to let my people go. In Revelation, we find something very similar. We find plagues reserved for those who are foolish enough not to submit to God's greatness, to His power and authority, and those, of course, who shall eternally regret that foolish decision. But in this chapter, as God's wrath is poured forth onto individuals who do not submit to Him, as these who refuse to acknowledge Him as the sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient being that He is, and choose to go their own route and way, they repent not. Though the word had been presented, the power and majesty of His command had been set forth, they refused to repent 
And as such, they were going to be the recipients of the plagues described in Revelation 16. As those plagues continue to be described, and as the graphicness and vividness is set forth, I would ask you to notice something stated in this about Jesus. It is nestled in the 15th verse of this chapter. In the midst of this imagery, these figurative descriptions of frogs and beasts and dragons and other things like that, I'd like you to read with me verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Who is the I? Is that John saying he was going to come? Of course not. Remember, Jesus was the author of the revelation in the sense that he delivered it to his angel who delivered it to John who wrote it down for you and me. Jesus said, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. We remember in other places, Jesus, as well as some other authors, had spoken about that set of events in which Christ would come on that second occasion, and he indeed is said to come as a thief. Thus, this passage harmonizes so beautifully with some of those matters. For instance, the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2, speaking about Christ coming, said, it'll be as a thief in the night. You and I can see nestled amongst the imagery is Jesus' statement and clue to help us see what it is he's describing. Great wrath of God poured forth on the rebellious ones who hadn't acknowledged him, submitted to him, and obeyed what he said. In light of that, in the very next verse, the very next verse is the only place in the Bible that mentions Armageddon. After having read that beautiful beatitude of verse 15, it says, And... He gathereth them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Isn't it amazing how mankind in the capability of his imagination has taken one occurrence of this word and built a gigantic theology about it. Isn't it amazing how much men can sometimes get out of one word? especially when they don't take that word and see how God has used it and how he has placed it elsewhere and defined it for us. You and I have already learned today the significance of Megiddo in the history of ancient Israel. And might we not lose sight of the fact that the revelation was written with people knowledgeable of much of the Old Testament in mind. For how often does John quote from Zechariah? and Daniel, and Ezekiel, those apocalyptic books of the Old Testament, and uses those thoughts to set forth eternal truth here. Thus, when you and I read about Megiddo here, we shouldn't be shocked, as long as we know how it was used elsewhere. What might be said about this little city known as Megiddo? Interestingly, Megiddo is located, as we mentioned earlier, in that area of northwestern Palestine, it is a little plateau, a field near the plain of Esdralon. It's about 10 acres. 10 acres. Might I ask, those who tell us from the days of Ezekiel that some 200 million people are to be gathered there in battle on 10 acres. And inasmuch as they're gathered there, they're supposed to have horses, and they're supposed to, in fact, use various what you and I would call ancient antique military armaments. All on ten acres. It somewhat stretches my mind to think how that could be. I'll leave you to wrestle with that. 
Because we find that it is not what is taught in the Bible at all. This is not speaking about a military warfare happening in the plain of Esdralon, literally with men carrying bayonets and forces of wood, but rather he is speaking about Jesus as I'm coming as a thief. When the end of time dawns, and Jesus our Savior appears in the clouds, and the righteous rise to meet him there, the dead having risen first, all evil in terms of the badness associated with it shall be finally, utterly, totally, and completely destroyed. Now think about the significance of Armageddon. Great victory was known at Megiddo at times and in places. Great victory will be known by few when Christ returns. Think about the faithful. The very thing they've looked forward to since the day of their baptism is going to happen. Jesus will return. And didn't he say as the revelation closes, I come quickly. And the saints exultingly responded, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Revelation 22, verses 21 and 22. However, just as surely as Megiddo was a place of great loss, tragic, notice the great loss that's going to happen at Armageddon in that description. Every person not prepared for Jesus' coming at that moment will be eternally lost. Every person who has failed to submit to the authority of Christ, to the greatness of His gospel, and to respond in faithful obedience to it, it will indeed be a terrible Armageddon for them. For when the Lord appears, listen to how it's described elsewhere. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall descend from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9. Notice he began that with the word comfort. There will be those, and you and I hope to be in that number. We anxiously look forward to being in that number. Who will know the greatness of eternal comfort that day? Being ushered into the glory of heaven forevermore, never to leave it, never to be dragged out of it, but ever to enjoy the pristine presence of God the Father Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit and all the anointed heavenly host. That's what we anxiously look forward to. For us, it'll be a grand day indeed of victory. Victory over Satan, self, sin, and all the horrible entrenchments that Satan is able to bring. But also on that day, it will be a day of unparalleled tragedy and loss for those unready for Savior to come. You see, they'll be encumbered in sin, not having obeyed the gospel. They'll be clouded with sin, stained and marred by it. And thus the Lord will say, Depart from me. I never knew you. Matthew 7, verse 23. Do we gain a feeling then of the significance of Armageddon? A day of great victory for some. A day of great loss for others. That's what the day of the Lord's second coming is going to be. May you and I ever live in a wholesome, sound, godly, and righteous way to be amongst that number who are prepared that day to hear the grand words. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Be thou ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Matthew 25, verses 23 and 25. Is Armageddon then what others tell us it is? Far from it. Is it what gentlemen on the television so often portray? 
Absolutely not. Is it, however, a clear and powerful biblical teaching? Yes, it is. We would be a bit remiss not to come near the close of our lesson by at least mentioning some of the verses to which they will so often turn and say these also speak about Armageddon, even though the word is not directly there. They'll quickly say that Ezekiel 38 and 39 speak about Armageddon, though again the word does not occur anywhere in those two chapters. And they're quick to say that Zechariah chapter 12 does the same. In fact, Denise and I received not long ago a letter from no doubt an earnest man, very sincere and genuine in his thinking, and he so often referenced Ezekiel 38 and 39 and portrayed it as a terrible Armageddon yet to come. One can't help but feel sad for those who so think. A reading of Ezekiel 38 and 39 paints to us a picture of the terribleness of the Babylonian captivity, but God's loving and precious message to a faithful remnant that was going to return to the place of Judah. Later in the Old Testament, we read that that's what occurred. It's what happened. This chapter does not talk about the events that so many think that it does. Zechariah chapter 12, it refers to the mourning that was to occur in Jerusalem on the death of the Son of God. It doesn't speak anything about what you and I would say would be an Armageddon like preachers sometimes say to us. We need to be thorough and diligent students of this book and listen less sometimes to what men say and a lot more to what God says. He identifies and explains to us and removes the fear and doubt of so many of the things men will say, but calms us with a simple word of what he has affirmed and the fear that goes with it to prepare for the Lord's coming like a thief. As we've studied today the battle of Armageddon, I hope that we've each been reminded about the simpleness of God's presentation, the way in which it could prick the hearts of individuals who are honest and earnest, just like on the day of Pentecost. They were pricked in their heart when they heard what Peter and the others preached. The simplicity of the gospel is that to which they responded. They hadn't been listening to years and ages of Law of Moses teaching. Peter stood and said, Christ died for you not many days back, but the grave couldn't hold him. Up from the grave he arose and he reigns at God's right hand now. Verse 36 of that chapter, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus who you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. It's at that moment the text says, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. May you and I ever be pricked with the truth of God. And if today your life is not in harmony with what God has taught, with what He has affirmed, may you make at once things right by following simply what He said. It's not what I say or even our elders here. All of us are just desirous to be simply what they were in the New Testament in wholesome goodness to the following of God as we look forward anxiously to being in that state, if we could help you today in your response to the truth of God, don't let men's statements about Armageddon and the doctrine and dogma and philosophy of it cloud you to the point where you give heed more to what men have said as opposed to what God has affirmed. The plan of salvation, as set forth in the New Testament, includes these items. You need to hear that which God has revealed. 
Jesus stated in Mark 4.24, Take heed what ye hear. Hear God's truth and have a heart tender enough to be open to what He says. And thus believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. After all, Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Your belief is necessary, Mark 16, 16. But following belief, you need to repent. The element of repentance, notice here in Revelation, those that didn't repent were the recipients of the wrath of those plagues. You need to repent, friend. On Pentecost, that's what Peter proclaimed, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. Following that repentance, you very simply will be asked, and God will demand it of you to make an, a statement of confidence in your belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God with all your heart. We call it confession. And Jesus used that word too in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. As you take that confession, a sweet statement indeed is then followed by your baptism. Your immersion in water for the forgiveness of sins. The baptismal waters are warm and ready and today we could be of assistance to anyone for whom that might be the need and desire of your life. Christ at that point will add you to His church, to His body. If though you at one point though have been a member of that body, but you have lost the faithfulness that you once knew, you have become perhaps one who has brought shame upon yourself and upon the church, realize that Jesus wants you back by His side. And the faithful brethren want you to return to your loving position of faithfulness as well. And so we'd be honored to pray. You, of course, need to believe in the sense of your wrong, be convicted of your error. You need, of course, repent of it and confess it, First John 1, verses 7 through 10. And then let us pray on your behalf. We'd be honored to do that. And if we can do it today, either of these things, won't you let us know what way we can help while together we stand and while we sing.